This episode of Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, is brought to you by, well, Grant's. I mean, it's a little kind of a selfie. And I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, about uh, our website, which is beyond fabulous and uh, someplace that you ought to visit. It's, um, well, let me, let me just describe some of the features. And when I get done describing, you will wonder why you are not on the website most of the time. So if you are not currently a subscriber, but uh, let's say you are an aspirational subscriber, say you um, read our almost daily grants, so or you listen to these podcasts, to both for both of which I thank you, you perhaps want to know more about the flagship, about the starship, the eponym, Grants Interest Rate Observer. Well, on our website, you can do so at zero cost. You can investigate the ideas uh, index, in investment ideas index. You can look at uh, uh, an essay I produced for the Weekly Standard having to do with the public debt. That's yours for the taking. There was a knowledge center with articles indexed by theme, such so as the cycles in financial history, long ideas, short ideas. There is a a highlight reel of uh, producers of, uh, of things we've written in grants at various fraught moments in finance over the past 35 years. And, uh, you know, you can, you can spend, this is, like, this is like going up into the attic and discovering an old stack of National Geographics. Once you sit down with them, pretty soon it's going to be dinner time and, and your significant other is going to be wondering why you haven't cleaned the attic. That is how uh, attractive and how informative is the Grants Interest Rate Observer website. So come to Grants, grantspub.com, investigate, and then, uh, dare I ask you to subscribe. It's as simple as that, right, Eric? Yeah. Okay. So um, with us as a special guest of this podcast is Russell Napier. He's the first and foremost, in my opinion. He Russell has many items on his CV, but uh, to my mind, his spirit is, is best presented in his capacity as the founder of the Library of the Stakes. It's a free public library, and the motto is changing the world one mistake at a time. And uh, I've visited the Library of Mistakes in, in Edinburgh, and it is merely wonderful. Some of my books are there, and I'm not sure if they're there because the publication was a mistake or because between the covers they document financial error. Now, Russell will help clarify that. But the immediate stimulus for Russell's appearance on this show is a terrific piece that he produced for the Financial Times of London this week, just the other day. And um, the headline is as follows. The cracks start to appear in a global monetary system that will end with a bang by Russell Napier. Russell, welcome to The Current Yield. Jim, I'm delighted to be with you. This is a piece that uh, requires not one careful reading, but several. I've been through it uh, many times, not for any lack of clarity or coherence on the part of the author, far from it, as clear as can be, but is chock-a-block full of facts, and those facts have all manner of implications for people who invest money and who are responsible for those who, who do. So, Russell, could you, could you um, give a short precy of what you said in this wonderful essay? I will try to be short. And the problem with the FT is you have to be very short. So it doesn't surprise me that many people, and I get quite a few emails saying it's not fully explained. Uh, that is my fault, actually. But anyway, the words were brief. I want to begin by saying, Jim, all your books are in the Library of Mistakes, as is my own. So you can draw <laughs> okay. you like from that. <laughs> So I remember saying to you maybe a year ago, saying, Jim, I think the global monetary system is collapsing. And you wisely said to me, there's a global monetary system, which has made me chuckle uh, ever since. And of course, to call it a global system is, is not correct. It's not a, a system that everyone's involved with. But at the core of it, there's this link between the RMB and the US dollar. Now, that's very different from other systems we've had in the past, which were truly global, uh, whether it was the Bretton Woods system or 
largely global in the gold standard. But this one is different. It really rests around that. And then lots of acolytes, satellites of those two countries which have decided to in some way or other follow suit. Uh, and that's really, I think, was created roughly in 1998. Uh, China moved in 94, bankrupted most of its competitors, and after they devalued, they, they joined it in 98. So just briefly, and it has to be very brief, I'm afraid, what happened post-98 is one of the most rapid rises in uh, world foreign exchange reserves in history in this unsealed system. At roughly 10 trillion U.S., from 1994 to 2014. And I picked 2014 as an end date simply because that's when, at least at this stage, world foreign reserves peaked. So for all of us who invest, there are two nice little things that happen from that. There is a $10 trillion flow into someone's uh, government bond market, i.e. that's the nature of foreign reserves holdings. And, and as you know, that's been dominated by Treasury, so that's a $10 trillion inflow. It's still quite a lot of money. We can maybe come back to just how much money it is. But crucially, also the creation of $10 trillion worth of high-powered money or reserves in the currency of all the countries that were intervening. And let's just stick with China, primarily China, but actually much wider than that. So it depresses, I would say structurally depresses the U.S. Uh, yield curve. Uh, these are not informed buyers. I didn't go to business school, but I believe that in business school they tell you basically the market's full of informed buyers, and when I meet one, I'll shake his hand. Uh, but certainly these guys are not informed buyers. They are forced buyers, uh, a product of enforcing that uh, currency intervention policy. So I would argue that when you put a forced buyer into a marketplace, you probably depress the yield below what it would normally be, which is very good for growth. Let's let's stop here and clarify a few things. I, I must say that when I first came across this word reserve uh, long ago, it puzzled me. What is a what exactly is a foreign exchange reserve? It's a, it's a unit of currency that is accumulated for, I guess, the purpose of manipulating somebody's foreign exchange rate, and it lies in the balance sheet of a central bank or perhaps of a sovereign treasury department. But in your piece, you talk about a $10 trillion rise in such uh, volumes of money. And I I'm, remember way back when there was all this talk about uh, savings glut in the world. That was Ben Bernanke's favorite uh, hypothesis for the existence of ultra-low interest rates. And I wonder if these $10 trillion of dollars worth of foreign exchange reserves constitute savings or whether they constitute rather than say the confection of bank credit through this simple tapping out of figures on a central bank computer keypad. Are these savings or are they dollars created through central bank manipulation? And is there a distinction to be drawn between savings on the one hand and central bank credit on the other? Yeah. So I never agreed with uh, Bernanke's assessment that this was savings because it very clearly and obviously and observably was not savings. Uh, and we can look at the U.S. flow of fund statistics to show what happened in terms of the holdings of treasuries by foreign central banks, none of which was funded by anybody on the planet anywhere having to either save more or spend less or sell another savings asset to buy a treasury. Now, if it doesn't so involve these, you these, saving these, more, these were, yeah. So the, the, these were these were just these were just dollars created through central bank action, and through well, that action, according to your piece, the chronic deficits on current account and in the domestic budget deficit of the United States of America, these 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 deficits were financed readily and painlessly. No, 
Yes, so I would just uh, disagree on one slight thing. These weren't dollars that were created. What was created was a renminbi and Saudi yes, Real yes. and everybody was intervening. So that's what was created. But absolutely right. on the other side of that balance sheet, it absolutely clearly played a huge role in funding the expansion of the United States government and crucially gave the savers a funding holiday and allowed the savers right. to fund everything else. And the point is it's finished. It's, it's over. Uh, that isn't there anymore. And the burden now falls more squarely upon the saver, at least until we get the next round of quantitative easing. The burden is now on the saver. And I argue, uh, and I didn't get time to do it much in that particular article, that really that is the burden which cannot be borne, not just by the U.S., but the consequences for people not creating all those renminbi in Saudi Riyadh are also fairly dire. And we've had discussions on this in the past, Jim, but I believe inherently and in, in, uh, in the short run, inherently deflationary rather than inflationary, though ultimately, of course, inflationary. So you document here, or at least assert you, you were not given the space to show all the figures, but the following set of figures really struck me that five years ago, foreign central banks accounted for one third of the holdings of all outstanding U.S. Treasury securities. And that uh, that portion today is less than one quarter of outstanding treasuries. And in addition to that observation, I would point out that between the expected issuance of treasuries this fiscal year and the expected dispositions of treasuries by the Fed, that the burden of supply, or I guess the bull would say the opportunity of supply, but in any case, the increment of new treasuries on offer in this country this year as a percentage of GDP is to be the highest since 1945. So that single data point would seem to underscore that the supply-demand balance has truly shifted in the United States government's debts. So the two numbers, when we add them together, that is the supply of treasuries from the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, I make it $1,345,000,000, and no foreign central bank bank could change. But at the minute, no foreign central bank bank. So that means all of that has to be bought by savers. One way of saying, is that a lot of money? would be to compare it to the incremental growth in savings one would expect in the United States in any given 12-month period. Uh, and based on the current savings rate, and I'll have to be a little less precise on this number, that's roughly around $900 billion. So the uh, private sector of the United States, or it should be more accurate, the household sector of the United States would save $900 billion, uh, but seek to fund $1.3 trillion of uh, U.S. Treasuries. Just to contrast with 2014, when the Fed was that still buying it, ended its operation in October 2014. I uh, calculated that roughly $250 billion of treasuries had to be taken up by savers uh, in that particular year. And now it's $1.345 or $5, or probably, let's just call it $1.3 trillion. And the great sucking sound I think we were hearing before Christmas was the reallocation of savings to soak up those treasuries. And just one final point on that. It's worth pointing out that that reallocation of savings doesn't have to be uh, American savings. It can be uh, global savings. So all of this really lines up with some comments by the Central Bank Governor of India in April last year, who really pointed all this out to, to all of us, for anybody who wanted to, to listen, that the world has changed when central bankers don't fund the U.S. government. And it certainly has changed. Now, Russell, what does this suggest for uh, U.S. Treasury yields? That is a great question, and I might surprise you with my answer, because if I give you those supply-demand equations, anybody would say there must be higher yields to attract forth and bring forth the savings or shift those savings. Perhaps. Uh, I am a great fan of Mr. Soros, and Mr. Soros obviously believes in reflexivity, uh, which I think is accurate. 
I think this asset class, this United States Treasury, is the most reflexive asset class in the world. In other words, reflexivity is simply that the security price does not reflect the fundamentals. On some occasions, the security price changes the fundamentals. And I think the fourth quarter of last year showed us that despite when these huge supply numbers were in place in the fourth quarter of last year, and yet the yield on these instruments was coming down, there were more buyers than uh, sellers at the, uh, at the price that we started out in October. It's, so if, if paradoxically, or maybe perhaps not paradoxically, but in any case, if the greater weight of supply, in fact, constitutes a reason to own more, owing to perhaps a deflationary impulse, and if central banks are not creating a new increment of credit to fund other things, what's going to give? Something must give, no? Yep. So it, we're talking mainly about the U.S., but what's giving is outside the U.S. Because remember, there's two parts of this. The other part is initially the central banks aren't uh, growing their balance sheets in the emerging markets anymore. At least those linked to the dollar aren't. Secondly, growth is slowing there. Inflation is coming down there. Asset prices are coming down there. We've had some very notable bankruptcies there. Turkey springs to mind, but almost like Argentina. There is a raft of countries across Africa, where this is already working. So, Jim, I would make some comparisons, which you might discuss, in the late 1920s. And I don't know if you subscribe to the Icon Green view of what happened there, but his view was that in this world where America was sucking in too much capital, and that's really what we're talking about here, that it was deflating the rest of the world. Uh, that was not bad for America for two, three years. But eventually, the pain of the slowdown in growth that occurred elsewhere in the rest of the world did begin to have an impact on the United States of America. So what I think gives is the Chinese exchange rate, that this straitjacket that the Chinese are in, uh, it's only been tightening very slowly for nearly 25 years, but eventually if you tighten something long enough, it becomes very tight. The straight, monetary straitjacket they are now in means they will let the currency go. But the pain, I think, is clearly most evident outside the U.S. at this stage rather than inside the U.S. So uh, the, the Chinese currency, the renminbi, or the yuan, is going to weaken against the dollar. Is that correct? Well, they manage it, and I think they abandon the exchange rate management program, and that means it declines on the international exchanges. Okay. So the renminbi weakens, and the dollar, of course, strengthens against, by definition against the Chinese currency. But what about other currencies? Is this setting the stage for a new strengthening of the dollar and against which items? Yes, it should strengthen against just about everything, and that relates to balance sheet effects. And we've seen this really throughout history in emerging markets ever since they began to borrow. They borrow in somebody else's currency, uh, and when they themselves are in economic difficulty, when they struggle to pay back that debt, uh, there's a surge to try and do so to the best of their ability to remain solvent, okay. and that makes them buyers of the dollar. So as in any other emerging market crisis, an RMB creates an emerging market crisis which pushes the dollar uh, higher. To me, Russell, the central sentence, the most important sentence in this very fine essay is as follows, quote, central bankers have bought growth by sacrificing financial stability, close quote. And the instability, if I read your piece correctly, that will be front and center will be that of Europe. Could you elaborate? Yes. If we're going to have a deflation shock, then you have to invest in robust systems and you have to avoid uh, systems that are not robust. Surely that's the lesson from the last time. Now, to me, the least robust system uh, in the world, actually, is in Europe. It's a fledgling currency. I mean, maybe only a historian can say 20 years is fledgling, but it's a fledgling currency. It's not properly formed, particularly in terms of its fiscal policy and its political alignment, which must follow that if there is to be no taxation without 
representation. The financial system itself, particularly Northern Europe, after seven years of incredibly low interest rates, uh, is weak. It is not strong. And politically within Europe, particularly with these elections coming up in May, uh, we are looking at disparate elements who do not believe in the centralization of power uh, within the euro. So there's the first real political crisis coming from the euro at a time when financial institutions are much weaker than they are, say, in the United States of America. Uh, and it's always risk and consequences. Now, the consequences of breaking up a single currency are so huge and so extreme that we have to put them, I think, in a different level than crises we've had in the past. So I think that's why we focus on uh, Europe, a major economic contraction in Europe today, given where interest rates are, given how fragile the financial system is, I think threatens the entire stability of the euro. Well, the Federal Reserve, of course, is America's central bank, but the dollar is the world's currency. And the Fed, you know, insists that its remit ends at the water's edge, that uh, it pays only the most perfunctory attention to events outside this country. But if those events reverberate within the 50 states, of course, the Fed does act, which is prefaced to asking you, is the Fed going to raise rates or is the Fed going to reduce rates this year? I, my view is the Fed it will be reducing rates this year and not raising rates this year. May 8, 2018 was the famous speech in Zurich by Jay Powell, where he made it clear that his burden and his, his goals and his role had nothing to do with what was happening outside the United States of America uh, and I think he's stayed re relatively true to that, despite some wobbles in the emerging markets. But I think a wobble in Europe is a different caliber of beast. Yeah. There is, I think, little direct exposure between emerging markets and U.S. banks. I think most of the debt exposure is in the debt markets rather than the banks. Uh, but clearly there is exposure for any uh, American bank with uh, European banks. So if it genuinely escalates beyond an emerging market event to a European event, uh, then absolutely the Fed will and will have to respond. So Russell Labond is, of course, is a promise to pay money. But if the Fed uh, begins reducing rates and if in an extreme it reverts to so-called quantitative easing and the further expansion of its balance sheet, will not the thought begin to occur to people that uh, the dollar itself is uh, an improvisation of only subjective value. And uh, are people going to be wondering what is this thing called money? Well, eventually, yes. But my answer, perhaps surprising answer, is not because of the Fed, but because of the People's Bank of China. You see, if China has a truly flexible exchange rate and a truly independent monetary policy, given its own very high debt to GDP levels, it will have to try and use that flexibility to generate inflation. In fact, that's why it's devaluing to instantly get that monetary yeah. independence. They can inflate the whole world. Now, that is probably not a consensus view, but remember what the Fed is. You, so, just to be, to be clear, so, so Russell, you said that, they, that China can or cannot inflate the whole world. I believe it can inflate the whole world, right? Can send it can. inflation into yeah. the, it can inflate the whole world. It can send inflation into the whole world once its currency stabilizes. The important thing is the Fed is currently pledged to manage interest rates relative to inflation expectations. So China will be determining Fed interest rates. If the Fed sticks to that pledge, which it won't, but if it was mandated to stick to the pledge, at what level of interest rates would they? have to get to it in the medium to long term if they were trying to counteract the inflation that China was generating as the world's second biggest economy, perhaps growing at 20, 25% in nominal terms. And the reason that people would begin to ultimately question the Fed's ability to produce a sound currency 
is would they really have the guts to attack the inflation coming from China? Or would any central bank governor have the guts to do that? So, Jim, I think it's financial repression that we get as a consequence of this. But a financial repression is absolutely the undermining of the purchasing power of money, albeit yeah. by administrative measures combined with central bank measures. Well, you know, the, uh, so many things are remarkable, and not a few are unprecedented in this world of ours, which is, by the way, the only world we have, so we can't deplore it too much. I mean, it's you know, what else is we to do? But one, perhaps the singular piece of information to me that characterizes this moment in finance is the ratio of Chinese debt or Chinese central bank assets to world GDP. And I think that number is uh, upwards of uh, 40-odd percent, 45 percent. It is uh, nothing like it, in the, at least in the modern history of finance. And if Evan Lorenz were here rather than, uh, you know, beguiling his day at the uh, jury pool, he could clarify, and uh, we will do so on the next podcast. But there is some ratio of Chinese debt to world GDP, not Chinese GDP, that is simply astronomical. So, Russell, here is here is the the big question for the patient listeners of this podcast, namely, what do you do with money believing what you believe? How do you invest? Well, uh, I, don't, I mean, I, the easiest thing for me to tell you is I hold a lot of cash and I hold a lot of dollars. And I also Jim, do hold quite a lot of gold. And I do hold United States treasuries, which seems a bizarre combination. But it's clearly not a, an asset allocation which I think is going to last three, four, five, six, ten, or 15 or 20 years. But it's an asset allocation in preparation for a deflation shock. And I think one of the more interesting things about the fourth quarter of last year is that gold was going up at a period when we were all concerned that the world was heading into much worse economic conditions. And I think it tells you something about the way gold will be seen as a store of value in this type of denouement, which is a denouement which brings much more direct government action, not just central banking. I think that's going to be the great fallacy that we're all expecting the central bankers to take the field. Uh, well, some of them will be central bankers, but they'll come charging along with other arms of government. And that is why the gold price uh, has been going up. Uh, for equities, of course, I've written a book on that to say when you should buy them. So uh, if they get cheap enough based on that book, then maybe we should be buying them as well. But they're certainly, definitely, and The title of that book is? There's Anatomy of the Bear, Lessons from Wall Street's Four Great Bottoms. And yes, if we indeed. are to have okay. an inflation shock, then uh, the book might come in useful. But it's certainly suggesting at the minute that you wouldn't have uh, equities in that. By the way, the numbers for China are since its last devaluation in '94, its high part money has grown 18-fold. And the total amount of credit has grown 54-fold since yeah. its last uh, devaluation. Well, if you, ladies and gentlemen, get a hard copy, hard copy, if you get the actual newspaper, the Financial Times, for Tuesday, January 15th, 2019, you will see on, uh, on page uh, 20, you will see a well-rested, a well-tanned, pleasant-looking man. He's wearing a blue shirt and a reddish uh, four-in-hand necktie. He's benign is his appearance. And he has written a truly arresting, thought-provoking, and explosive piece of prose having to do with the monetary system, or lack thereof, and what it's going to, what's to become of it. And uh, I think the word bang, Russell, best uh, encapsulates what lies ahead for us, monetary affairs, at least uh, 
anyway, that, that, that is the burden of your fine piece. So Russell Napier, thank you for being with us. And let's check in from time to time to see how uh, the progress or I guess I would say retrogression of this theory is, is doing, how the world is faring. But I think you have told all of us how we might be thinking about it, for which I thank you. Thank you. Happy to do so. Great. Talk to you soon, Russell. And ladies and gentlemen, thank okay. you for listening. 